Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn how voices carry stories of power, equality, and respect. My first guest is Elizabeth Lesser. This episode was recorded while on the road, and you know what that means. Imperfect sound, imperfect technology, but still that perfect, health-consciously prepared brain food. My guest today is Elizabeth Lesser. She is the author of several best-selling books and is the co-founder of Omega Institute, recognized internationally for its workshops and conferences in wellness, spirituality, creativity, and social change. Elizabeth has given two popular TED Talks and is one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, a collection of 100 leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity. She's the author of Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, the Human Story Changes. Welcome, Elizabeth Lesser. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, first of all, I have to say that the Omega Institute is one of my go-to happiness havens and has been for many decades. So I'm really thrilled to have you here and to be able to share a little bit of my world with you. Thanks. I'm so glad that you are a fan of Omega. Yes, indeed. Let's talk about the story of Eve and why she is so important in this process uh, that you describe, you know, of the integrity and importance of women's storytellers? Well, when I started writing this most recent book of mine, Cassandra Speaks, my thought was, there's a famous historian line that says, history isn't what happens, it's who tells the story. And of course, we know that most of the storytellers, whether it's religious stories, myths, literature, most of the stories, especially early on in history, were men. And I, I really asked myself, what would be different if women had been equally empowered and valued in telling stories? So, of course, the first story you want to look at is Adam and Eve, the first Western story of creation. And the Bible is full of heroes, men, who go on what's called the hero's journey, you know, the, the Joseph Campbell idea of the hero's journey, where you, you get tested, you leave home, you have to leave everything that's familiar, you get tempted, you do things that maybe wake you up and make you become a better person. And so there's all sorts of male heroes, whether it's Jonah or Job or Jesus. And there's only one hero in the Bible who is punished for that journey, that journey of being curious, leaving home, finding yourself, being tested. And that's Eve. The story of Eve is she was the second born 
human, but she was the first to sin. And what was her sin? She was curious. She wanted wisdom. She listened to the snake. She was tempted. And then she had to go through trials and leave the garden so that maybe she could find herself. But she's the only hero in the Bible who is punished for her curiosity and her desire to be wise. And that's really where so many of these stories about women through antiquity up to today, they all have this lack of faith in the female hero and a punishing for her curiosity. As you're sharing this, I'm thinking about a very recent plight of women and the narrative around being a woman or a girl in a place called Afghanistan. And I think of what society is doing to them and trying to box them and package them and make them compact and mute when, in fact, they are the the heroes or the sheroes of that society. It's a perfect example to bring up this punishing spirit of women that has been going on throughout history. Now, we might say to ourselves, but it's not like that today. But you see how quickly we can go back to that if you look at a culture like Afghanistan, where women have to cover themselves completely in this sense of women being the temptress, women's very, just our bodies, just who we are as being seen as something that is tempting men. Instead of men changing who they are, women throughout history have had to change who we are so as to fit in the male narrative. And the absolute tragedy of what's happening in Afghanistan now, where over the past 20, 30 years, women have finally come out and found a way to be educated, to be trusted, to be seen as valued parts of the society. Within weeks, that all changes. The Taliban comes in. And once again, women are seen as sinful creatures that must be kept in a home. And it's interesting. This is a a subject that is very close to my heart because another one of our projects uh, through Harvesting Happiness, not of this show, is capturing the, the voices of women in Kabul right now. And so I'm very actively engaged with women almost on a daily basis who are telling these stories of their power trying to be repressed by the Taliban, and yet their spirit is indomitable, their intelligence is tremendous, and they all say the same thing, that these men are living in fear, that ultimately it is the fear of women's power that is creating this issue. And what a sad and useless fear that is, because, you know, one of the exciting things about the times we're living in, when all these questions about gender are coming up. What does it even mean to be a woman, to be a man? What is the feminine spirit? What is the masculine spirit? Can it live in all of us? What would it be like for a woman to feel free to be our most powerful self and our most compassionate self? What would it feel like for a man to be able to be that? And especially in the younger generations now, you see so much being played with that, being, I am a human. I have multitudes within me. I am everything. Therefore, why should a man be afraid of women's power when we all have these marvelous uh, stews of, of gender and hormones and creativity within us? And when we talk about stories, right, sort of the, the, the human condition and, you know, weaving this tapestry that becomes the story of our life and our culture, that 
we can blend all of this, right? That we're not to be feared, but to be revered and enjoyed. And conversely, that men get to express these aspects of themselves. That's the hope anyways. One of the stories that I uncovered when I was writing the book wasn't a religious story or a myth story or a literature. It was a science story, because as you say, we collectively decide to believe a story and then that becomes the value of the culture. So you know how we say that under stress, human beings either have a fight or flight instinct. We have all come to accept that as the truth, that inside of us, when bad things happen, stressful, traumatic things happen, we have one of of two responses. We either aggress and fight or we retreat, we run away, we disconnect. Well, that scientific idea came from studies being done in the 1930s and 40s at Harvard by a medical psychiatrist by the name of Walter Cannon. He brought people into his labs and he simulated stressful experiences. And then he measured their hormones and their blood levels to see what happens when a human is stressed. And he came up with the term fight or flight. That is the chemicals he measured in the bloods of his subjects. Well, it wasn't until the early 2000s that a researcher at UCLA noticed something interesting. Her name was Shelley Taylor. And she noticed that the people that Dr. Cannon had brought into his Harvard lab all those years ago were all men. And that's not that unusual. Most medical studies up until very recently were done on men only, whether it's heart disease or cancer, those were the only people being studied. So Dr. Taylor decided to replicate the studies and bring women into her lab. And when she simulated the same trauma-inducing, stress-inducing studies, she found that Uh, Yeah, there was sometimes this fight or flight hormone release, but most of the time, women had a different reaction to stress and trauma, and she called it the tend and befriend reaction. The levels Mm. that were measured in their blood was under stress, women often tend to the most vulnerable in the community, or they form circles of belonging, befriending. You can recognize it in yourself. You come home from a stressful day at work and instead of like fleeing and disconnecting from other people, you call all your friends on the phone and you talk it out and you have these circles of belonging and friendship. So she came up with this theory that under stress and trauma, women tend and befriend. Men also have the capacity to awaken that aspect in themselves. And what would it have been like if all these years as a culture, we had valued the tend and befriend reaction in the human as much as the fight or flight. I mean, we think of heroes, we think of the fighter, we think of the warrior. I'm really interested in women and men beginning to redefine what it means to be a hero, that the hero also tends and the hero also befriends and caretaking becomes the new norm of what it means to be heroic. You know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking the words that come to mind is that caretaking becomes the power base that, you know, you you write in the book, Cassandra speaks about women doing 
power differently. And it's from this place, right? The tend and be friend spot that women can really shine as leaders. Yeah, because when you were mentioning what's going on in Afghanistan right now and how you're, the women you're speaking to, and God bless you for doing that, are telling you that the control men are exerting on them is coming from their fear of the women. Yeah. If we value tending and befriending, there's really less reason to be afraid of the other, to be afraid of people who are different from us, whether it's a difference in gender or a difference in race or nationality or sexuality. If we value this idea of befriending and value it more than fighting, <laughs> and, and, we, and we say as a culture, we are going to call heroic the tendency to befriend, then there's just not as much room for the people who are motivated more by fear and fighting. Well, it's if you observe two people trying to achieve command of their command of the room or command of their jobs or command of their families, it's usually the one who has a befriending approach that gets the job done. You know, the rule of law by force doesn't usually actually work. In, yeah, it in, has a terrible track record, doesn't it? Yes, terrible track record. <laughs> I mean, we have a lot of history to prove that that is not a good method for leadership or leading communities. But still, you walk through a park or a museum and the statues are still the warriors. You know, I write in Cassandra Speaks about a walk I took through Central Park in New York City and I really paid attention to all the statues for the first time. I'd walked by them hundreds and hundreds of times. And it was stunning to me that, wow, most statues in most parks and capitals of countries are of warriors. What, like, what if we had statues of, huge statues of a mother and a child or a woman giving birth or all the things that we think of when we think of tending and befriending? You know, it's yeah. going to take some work for us to change what we consider to be heroic. But the work, I believe, lies not only in the action, but the storytelling. My guest today is Elizabeth Lesser. She is the author of Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, How the Human Story Changes. To learn more, please visit ElizabethLesser.org on Twitter at Elizabeth Lesser and on Facebook E-L-I-Z Lesser. And that's the same on Instagram, E-L-I-Z Lesser. Eliz Lesser. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Before we pause, let's share a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Problems, problems, problems. They are just a fact of life and we all have them. But good problem solvers are made through the right mindset. And having a balanced mind not only helps us to have a happier life, but it makes us better problem solvers. Throughout my life, therapy has been instrumental in helping me stay focused, action-oriented, and meet challenges head-on. 
This means less stress and anxiety for me and the benefit of being more confident and productive. A good therapist is like having your own personal cheerleader to support you through the roller coaster of life. The best part about BetterHelp is that it's affordable, accessible, convenient, and entirely online. BetterHelp delivers therapy at your fingertips from the comfort of wherever you are, anywhere in the world. No driving, no parking, no waiting, no hassle. Got stuff going on in your head that could use a little sorting out? Consider giving therapy a try, and BetterHelp is a great place to get the emotional support you need. Get matched with a therapist quickly and easily after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Harvesting Happiness to get 10% off your first month. That's better h e l p dot com slash harvesting happiness. Now let's take that break. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness dot com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back. But before we return to the conversation, let's talk about getting the kids back to school, restoring the daily routine, and getting ourselves back down to business. How are you planning to gear up for fall and attract the right people to your team to help your business fire on all cylinders? Right now, our team is actively seeking advisory board members for a startup venture, and LinkedIn Jobs is my go-to network to find the right talent to help us soar. Create a job posting in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs that will reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 810 million people. Then, Add your job and the purple-colored hashtag hiring to your own LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your own network can help you target the right people to hire. Simple tools make it easy to focus on attracting the right skills and experience so you can quickly evaluate and prioritize your best candidates. That is why small businesses everywhere rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering high-quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash hh. That's linkedin.com slash hh to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now let's get back to the conversation. And we're back continuing the conversation with my guest today, Elizabeth Lesser. We're talking about how voices carry stories of power, equality, and respect. This episode was recorded while on the road. And you know what that means? Imperfect sound, imperfect technology, but still that perfect health consciously prepared brain food. Elizabeth, I want to sort of pivot our conversation to the direction of personal change and how we can work with our own inner resources to change the nature of power. Mm. That's such a good question because, you know, and and I divide the book into those uh, two ways of of looking this idea of of stories. One, what are the stories that have defined what humanity thinks of as power and heroism over the the eons. But then the second half of the book is more like, 
okay, now what? What do I do? <laughs> the story at my workplace sucks and I don't feel strong enough to change it or my family or my community. So I spent some time in the book actually giving practices and talking about the imposter syndrome that so many women feel overcome with, like, I'm not strong enough. I don't have a voice. I don't believe in myself enough. So one of the things that I teach a, a meditation in the book, and I, I'm always surprised when I write a book and then I either go out on a book tour or, of course, with the pandemic, it's been more through Zoom. I'm always surprised with what part of a book do people really latch on to and say, oh, my God, that really helped me. And I teach a meditation that I call the do no harm, but take no meditation. <laughs> and yes, ma'am. <laughs> I, you know, I've been a student of mindfulness and Buddhist meditation for 40 years. And of course, I made that up. That is not a classical Buddhist meditation, do no harm, take no, but it's based on some basic mindfulness practices. So you know how you see in meditation statues or iconography, the Buddha sitting there with a strong back, like a straight backbone. And as you're listening, you can do this as I'm talking to you, like feel what it feels like when you have a strong back, you're kind of telling your body and your soul, I've got your back. I can do this. I believe in myself. I belong. That's really the first um, instruction you get in meditation. Take your seat. And what that means is believe you belong here. Believe that your instincts, let's say, as we were talking about before the break, your tend and befriend instinct. Believe that that is a valid way to make your way through the world. Instead of fighting and fleeing, you proclaim to the world. I am a tender and a befriender, and I am proud of it. And it's a great way to organize a culture. So in your meditation, you feel that in your backbone. You feel this sense of I belong, I know my values, and I know they're worthwhile. So that's one way you hold your body when you start meditating in this practice I'm giving you called the do no harm, but take no. This is the take no practice of the meditation. <laughs> I'm in okay. delight. I'm in delight as you describe this. <laughs> then there's the do no harm. Now, you know, the, the Hippocratic oath for all healers, doctors, yes. nurses, is to do no harm. That's the healer's credo. I will do as little harm as I possibly can as I walk through this world. And that is the credo of the tender and the befriender. I, I will do no harm. That is a very powerful way to go through the world. But if all we do is practice our sort of compassion and kindness without a strong backbone, we can get run over. So right now, as you're listening to me, feel your nice, strong back. And at the same time, soften your chest, soften your heart. You can put your hand on your heart and pat it. And remember that doing no harm, tending and befriending is the new hero. So you feel a strong back. You're not going to take any sh but you're going to do no harm at the same time. This to me is the practice of the new 
way of being a hero. Strong, back, soft, front, take no, do no harm, both together. I love this strong, backed, soft, front. And if you look at all the pictures of whether it's Buddhist iconography, Christian, uh, the female heroes or the spiritual heroes all have this strong back and soft front. It's a, a very powerful image, you know, to think of oneself occupying our bodies and space and life in this position. It's a story. It's a story you carry in your body. And as you go into a room at work, your body says, I, am, I belong here. I know who I am. I'm someone to contend with. And I'm your friend. I know you belong here too. I know your values are something I want to hear about. And this is a different way of exercising power. It's not one way or the highway. It's both ways trying to work together. Not only is it exercising power, but it's being, it's actually being in, in the space of power. Mm-hmm. How are men and women wounded by the traditional patriarchy? Like a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have three sons. I have grandsons. I have a husband. I'm a great admirer, partner, lover of men, and I see how much them cutting themselves off from their tending and befriending have harmed men and have harmed society and have harmed women. But most of all, it's harmed their own experience of life. I mean, I love being a woman. I love being someone who from an early age was told that I could feel and cry and talk a lot and put my arms around my friends. And like, what a gift that is. And if you think of little boys, they start out that way. And then they're told as they grow. And I know it's less now, but it still is, especially if you go all the way to cultures like like Afghanistan, where men are supposed to be tough and cut off from their feelings. How can you know what someone else is feeling if you don't know what you are feeling yourself? How can you know what the world is feeling if you don't respect your own feelings? I have a dear friend, Eve Ensler, who's the person who wrote the vagina monologues. And she always says, I am an emotional creature. And she says that with pride. So women's emotional intelligence to me is a blessing. And I feel men have been very wounded by not being allowed to be emotional creatures. And of course, we know the way women have been wounded from the abject wounding of sexual wounding, but also just this sense of not believing in ourselves, not believing that the message and stories coursing through our blood is not as important as the instincts and stories of men. Amen, sister. <laughs> that's all. We're out of time. And that's like, I can't, I can't put a, a finer point on it than you did. So I'll just, I'll just say amen. And thank you for being with me. And my guest today is Elizabeth Lesser. The book is Cassandra Speaks. When women are the storytellers, the human story changes. To learn more and to connect, 
please visit elizabethlesser.org. On Twitter at Elizabeth Lesser and on Facebook and Instagram, those handles are slightly different. They are Eliz Lesser, L-E-I-Z Lesser. Elizabeth, thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing your wisdom and your incredible insight, you know, and to guide us to having strong backs and softer fronts. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we're back continuing exploring our theme today of how voices carry stories of power, equality, and respect. My next guest is Donna Freitas who has written more than 20 books, both fiction and nonfiction, for adults, children, and young adults. Among them are Consent, a memoir of unwanted attention, and her debut novel for adults, The Nine Lives of Rose Napolitano, which has been translated into 20 different languages. Donna has spoken at nearly 200 colleges and universities to discuss her nonfiction research and has written and has appeared on radio and television from NPR's All Things Considered to the Today Show to do the same. And Donna, I, I can't wait to bring you on because I learned a really great fact about you that you have earned my respect. And that is a little something about your mobile phone. <laughs> well, I'm so happy to be here talking to you today. I think the, um, the fun fact is the fact that I do not have a smartphone and I've actually never had one. Yeah. <laughs> And I respect that. I respect that because in my work and all the years of talking to amazing researchers and learning about what these phones do to our brains, I think, gosh, she's ahead of the curve. I mean, you are a thoroughly modern woman, technologically savvy, (laughs) and have intentionally chosen not to succumb. You have not given your consent in this way. (laughs) It's funny, I'm not technologically savvy in the sense that if you handed me your smartphone, you would have to help me use it. I, I don't actually, I never learned how to use a smartphone. So whenever anyone hands me one, they laugh because I'm like, how, do, how does this work? In the beginning, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was just, I had this phone for about nine years that just worked and I you know, was sort of like, why would I get a different phone? And this was when, and everybody started to get smartphones, but I was like, well, I'm not going to buy a new phone if this phone works, it's perfectly fine. And then I think it was maybe around 2011, I had a book that came out and suddenly everyone was like, why don't you have a smartphone? You need a smartphone because they wanted me to respond immediately always for different interviews and things. And I think that was when I suddenly was like, you know what? No, I'm not getting a smartphone. I don't want to be reached all the time. And so that was when it became a conscious choice. And ever since then, um, I've just actively, everyone tries to get me to get one. And I always say no. Well, and it helps you with other parts of your lives, which I want to get into in a minute. But I want to point out that your PhD is in gender studies, philosophy, and religion. And if you look at your career and the subjects that you're interested in in your research, it all kind of makes sense to me as the observer, you know, why you've made the choice to not have that smartphone, to not buy in. 
you know, a lot of my work requires focus. It requires reading, a lot of reading. And then I, I ended up becoming a writer. And I would say that I also, like most of us, I struggle you know, I struggle with things that are sort of trying to get my attention, you know, like even just an email on my laptop or something. And so I, I definitely figured out early on that if I, and I really enjoy my work is the other thing. I enjoy all the different aspects of it, whether it's fiction or nonfiction and like the research that I do. And I, I figured out early on that the, the internet, any sort of access to the internet was impeding my own enjoyment of my work. And so I, um, I started this practice, a daily practice in the morning. And luckily, I, work, I wake up really, really early in the morning, um, like uh, really like, like three or four in the morning. And I just started this practice where I would get up in the morning and I just would unplug the internet from the wall <laughs> to avoid using, so I could get my work done and my reading. And I've joked before about like, if I have to go stay at a hotel I've joked with people about, oh, I'm going to have to like ask the hotel to unplug the internet for everyone in the morning when I get up to work, but it's how I get things done. And, and, and I, so I knew that about myself that I needed to really just not have the temptation. So that is one of the biggest reasons why I have not gotten a smartphone is that I know it'll break my ability to do all that work. I love breaking concentration, right? Yes. Basically. I think we get that. I mean, I think we can all understand the interruption of flow with these little handheld devices. I want to talk a little bit about your decades of research about sex on campus and all things related to consent and Title IX, because this is where it starts, right, for you? It's a complicated history for me. So I worked in, in gender. Gender studies was one of the areas I did in graduate school. And so I was always interested in those topics. And then when I started teaching as a professor, I began to realize that my students were hungry for conversations about like sex and re- relationships. And I had worked in student affairs with students in the residence halls for many years while I was getting my graduate degree. And so I was very concerned with their well-being. And so I began to draw those topics into my teaching. But then uh, I learned a lot of questions that we weren't asking, like the young adults in our lives that they really wish that they could be asked and to discuss. And so that's what that's what led to my initial research on sex on campus. But when I started doing that research, one of the things that came up was just how much coercion uh, and I would just say almost um, detachment or the pressure to detach from the like the sex the students were having um, was was this ongoing topic and so I began to really sort of pull that thread and ask questions about you know about consent about desire in relation to sex and and I think one of the things I hadn't really let myself think about, because I was always so focused on my students, was my own relationship to that topic. Because the memoir I wrote is about what happened to me in graduate school. And because I had to file a Title IX complaint when I was in graduate school because of a professor, a professor's behavior. And so I, I had this very personal experience with it. I also really held it far away from my research for a very long time. But over the last 20 years, it's, it's been kind of like putting together a puzzle of my work with students on this topic and then my own personal experience with this topic and how those fit together. When you came forward with the filing of the, the Title IX claim, what happened to you? I mean, I can put myself in your shoes and I can think, okay, courage, fear, <laughs> uncertainty, big risk. 
I mean, this was way before, um, this was years and years ago. So more than two decades ago. So it wasn't at a time when we were talking about these issues and I just, I felt incredibly alone. I was also, I mean, it was a last resort for me to come forward and to make a complaint because I, I tried to handle everything on my own. And I think like so many people who end up coming forward, you worry about the repercussions of doing so, whether or not you'll be believed, what will be the impact to you on your future. In my case, I worried about my, the future of my career. You worry about being judged. And to be honest, it's when I think about, you know, there's, the, there's what happened to me in graduate school, which was a pretty long ordeal. It went on for about three years. And then um, there was the part where I came forward. And, you know, I, it's hard for me to decide which experience was worse. So it was a pretty terrible time in my life. And so I think now that I look back and, and sort of think about all the work that I've been doing on campus for so long, I, I can also realize how connected it is to my desire to change things for students now or to sort of figure out, like, how can we make the experience of coming forward better for people now? So, And I'm also wondering is how having conversations can enhance or enrich our language, our relationship language, so sex is not weaponized? Well, you know, one of the interesting things I found out in my research, like immediately when I first started doing it so many years ago, was that, you know, we've definitely, somehow we've, as a culture, we've passed on the idea that you're not supposed to care about sex, like almost a literal version of being casual about sex, that like casual sex is the ideal and you have to literally be casual about it. And the students will talk about how they work really hard to show how little they care about their partners and, and that it's an expectation to not care even if they care so much. And I remember thinking like, this is a mess. Like how, how have we gotten here? Like this is, because also this is like the antithesis of sexual liberation, right? Like if you're liberated sexually, like you should be able to like express your desires and like, and so if you care, you should be able to care. Like you shouldn't be forcing yourself into some box about, you know, some, some sort of idea about sex that's not yours that you actually resent. And I would say the theme that came up so much was that students were trying to conform to a set of expectations around sex that they not only didn't agree with, but that they resented. And so even if you're just thinking about consent in that context, it's, it's, that's, it's problematic. Yeah. But one of the things that the students would talk about as like really important in the, in, toward the end of not caring was not talking to your partner while you were hooking up. And I remember the first time someone said that to me, I was like, well, like what, <laughs> you know, like what is, how do you even know that they still want to be there? And, <laughs> you know, this was kind of a question that would stump the students. And that's when I became, like, I started to think about how like, wow, like this is a disaster for yeah. sexual assault. And like one of the things that was also happened in my early research was so many young women specifically reported sexual assaults to me in their interviews without actually naming them as sexual assaults. And so like I heard them as assaults. I knew that they were assaults, the stories that they told about them, but they just breezed right through them as though it was just like a normal sexual experience. And so that was when things were really um, coming together for me. And I thought like, oh, we've got to, 
like we've got to figure this out. And that was like back in 2006. So that was way before our culture really started talking about sexual assault on campus in a public way and where we started talking about Title IX. And also what I'm hearing you say is there was this bifurcation of the physical and the emotional, you know, a complete disconnect from the body. Oh, definitely. You know, and, and what is that about? I mean, I, I, I don't know your age, but I know mine and I know that my ex- college experience with my sexuality was very different than that. I, it was different for me too. It's funny because, you know, I, I went to college in the early 90s and I definitely, I feel like I grew up in this like really repressed, well, you know, I, was, I grew up Catholic and everything was repressed. But I also, <laughs> I also because I sort of, this is so ironic, because I didn't really get any sex education, but I definitely was like interested in sex. I kind of just like figured it out by like, like asking, like listening to my body and being like, well, my body wants this. It doesn't want that. Or like, I like you, but, and just sort of like going with that. And it actually ended up being really great because I would I would be like, well, I like this, but not that. So don't do that again. (laughs) And like, you know, it was kind of, you know, it was so I didn't have these expectations that were placed on me. And of course, you know, that can be bad. Like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have sex education. But in a lot of ways, like what I learned to do was listening to listen to myself and what I wanted and really listen to my desires. And it actually like led to a really great sex life in college. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I think about we how, like that. <laughs> um, how like all of these expectations that like, you know, young adults are getting now about you're, you're supposed to be this way or you're supposed to be that way. Like expectations that people get from porn, you know, like you're supposed to have sex this way, but not that way. They're all sort of like sitting on top of our brains or like these kids brains. And so sex becomes an act of performance as opposed to something you do because you're like, yeah, this sounds awesome. My body wants this or I really want this. And so I feel like a lot of the work I'm doing and a lot of the problems we have around consent are in that knot that I'm just talking about. We'll come right back. To learn more about Donna Freitas, please go to www.donnafreitas.com. You can find her on Instagram at Donna Freitas Writer. We're talking about consent, a memoir of unwanted attention, and also the nine lives of Rose Napolitano. We need to talk about her too, Donna. Here comes the pause. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. We're back continuing the conversation with Donna Freitas. We're talking about how voices carry stories of power, equality, and respect. Let's get back to it. So, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going back to this thought about the advent of these smartphones and 
that turning point for you in 2006 with recognizing that there's something different going on with these kids on campus in relationship to their sexuality, sexual expression, and their relationships? Well, I think, you know, if, if you think about desire, all kinds of desire, but let's say sexual desire as this kind of voice that's in you, one of the things, you know, ironically, like in our supposedly sexually liberated world that we've done is that by, by sort of sending out all these particular messages to kids, you know, they're sort of out there in the ether about, you know, being casual about sex, because that's the big one they get, like I would say, is that they need to show that they don't care about sex. Sex is not a big deal. The effect of that is to, to sort of silence that voice of desire in them or to never really allow it to develop. And, you know, I, I think, I know, you, you know, you wanted to talk a little bit about the smartphones and social media, which is like one of the changes that was happening at the time during my research. So, you know, we get a lot of information online. And so that's sort of, that's sort of definitely, you know, replicating the idea that we're not supposed to care about sex. Sex is no big deal. Everybody has it, whatever, like, which is the message that, you know, you get. And so then you have all these young people who are trying to live out that message, right? They're like, they're trying to not care about these things. And they're often just, you know, engaging in like hookup. So hookup culture is sort of like the dominant culture at this point. It sort of started in the 2000s and now it's just, that's just what there is. And can I ask you something about that? I want to ask you about the hookup culture because, I mean, I do have young adult children and they don't really talk to me about their sexual expression. They do talk to me about their relationships and each one is in one. But I know the hookup culture exists. And I'm wondering if are these kids reporting that they're sexually satisfied in these hookups? Well, so I, I almost feel like talking about hookup culture now feels like so old school. It feels like so 2000s, even <laughs> though it's still like it's just sort of the norm everywhere. But like, you know, it's been a long time since like I feel like we've been talking about it as a culture. But I would say that it's a culture that, you know, that teaches you that sex is like is no big deal, that like you shouldn't care about it. But, but at the same time, you're supposed to be you're supposed to be hooking up. And it kind of turns sex into this thing that you do. I remember one of the things I wrote about in one of my books was just how it's like, you know, college students have learned to talk about sex like it's doing the laundry, you know, it's, or it's yes. kind of like you like, GTLS. you get out, you have a bowl of cereal, cereal, you do your homework, you do the sex, so like you go to the library, <laughs> you know, like, and it's not something that you're necessarily doing because you want. It's to. a checklist. Yes, it's, it's something that you got to get done. Yeah. Literally, it's something you got to get done. Like it's on your to do list, and so. And I just remember thinking how joyless that sounded. And but that th this is how you learn to be casual about it, right? Like that's kind of what it is, right? You you approach it like it's laundry, like whatever, no big deal. And I think one of the things that you know hookup culture sort of thrives. It re like you know because of social media and smartphones, right? We we we're able to like reinforce norms in this yes. norm, like this huge way. It's really really hard to go against the grain now because because like all these ideas are floating out there and so they're so potent and it's hard to like detach from them. But also, I think one of the things that smartphones and social media does is it speeds up our life so that we don't do much thinking. And so um, that's what hookup culture thrives on, right? Hookup culture is about don't care sex. So it means it's got to be sexy you don't think about, sexy you don't care about. So you shouldn't be thinking too much about it. And so this is perfect, right? Like we're in a, we're in a society now where we almost don't have time to think. So because thinking is how you, did, is, is how you sort of stand against these norms, right? You've got to start to think about it and be like, wait, do I want this? Do I not want this? And so our lives are so fast 
that they just sort of like sweep up our kids like into this cycle and then they don't know how to get out of it. I know that was like a really big complicated idea, but it's a complicated thing. Uh, It's a complicated idea that permeates to other areas of our lives as well, right? If we're not thinking about how we're hooking up, right, it's just a line item on our day, then we're not thinking about some other really, really monumental things like who we put in office, you know, politically, who's running, who's running the country. (laughs) I mean, it's pervasive. Well, I I do think, you know, the fast paced sort of non thinking way in which we're living, right? Like we're just sort of reacting all the time to the beeps, you know, and the things trying to grab at our attention. Like that doesn't really, you know, give us the skills we need to even just stop and ask ourselves, what do I want? What feels good? Do I like this? Do I agree with it or not? And because that is, you know, I mean, I'm going to sound like a a professor here, but I do think that a lot of like, so for example, good, good sex, like if we want our kids to have good sex, we need to teach them to be critical thinkers about it. Like we need to teach them to stop. We need to teach them to stop and think about sex like they think about anything else, like, like, a, you know, like, a, like history or, you know, like math or something like this is something that they should really wonder about and learn about and ask themselves about and ex- like, do a lot of self examination with, you know, in, in terms of like the, the Socratic way, like, you know, an exam, the examined sex life, you know, like, what do, what does this mean to me? Like, who am I as a sexual being? Like, what do I want my relationships to look like? But we're living in a world that doesn't, empower us to do those things anymore. And I do think this is a huge part of why there's such a lack of satisfaction around sex right now, and just a lot of things in our lives. Yes, I'm thinking about this. uh, And I'm like, if, if, if Donna ran a course with like, you know, the anatomy of sexual satisfaction, just with a title like that as the course with a description about in this course, you will learn how to have more satisfying sex because you are learning to be a critical thinker about your life and your desires. You'd have them lined up like <laughs> around the globe. <laughs> I'd be really bad at the anatomy though. Like, I mean, I know certain anatomy, but I'm definitely not a scientist. <laughs> so. Yeah, but the anatomy, I mean, the anatomy of sexual pleasure, there's the architecture of the pleasure. And then there's this whole mental realm that I think people are not in touch with today because they have the attention span of fleas, right? Like, well, one of the biggest shocks of my life was when I was talking to a bunch of students and I, I was giving a lecture about my research and then a bunch of students stayed after to, to have conversations with me. And they were very, they were all seniors at this particular college. They were all very sexually active and open about it. And then at some point in the conversation, I asked them as a group, I was like, well, so what is good sex to you? This was years ago. And they were like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, what is good sex? Like, what do you think good sex is? Like, what, 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 in your opinion? And they were like, I don't know. I've never thought about it. And then I was like, wait a minute, you guys are all having sex and you've never thought about what you want from it. And they were like, well, no, no one's ever asked that before. And I just remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like, this is just like a basic like thing. Like, and, and we, we've just, we don't even empower kids to ask that question how has that even happened? And so I think we, we make a lot of assumptions for them, but also these really basic things that take time, right? Like asking, like answering that question. That's a really, that's one of life's big questions. Like what is good sex or what does it mean to be a sexual being? Like you can't just answer it in a second. You can't just tweet the answer. You know, (laughs) you've got to. And so one of the things I do when I go to campuses is I, 
I am, I try to challenge the students to take a whole semester during their college lives and devote it to asking themselves about what does it mean to be a sexual being and then for them and then what is what does good sex look like them and I was like devote your papers read books like take like do it like a course like it's all like you just decide I'm going to devote this time and I'm going to do this for myself and all my partners I think this is a great process that you're challenging students to do because it forces the analysis of passion and creativity as well because the, well, the sex, the act of sex, what is it? They, they used to say the average sex act is nine minutes, right? And probably now with these phones, it's maybe three, three minutes, you know? I don't know. Oh, the best is when the students talk about how they check their phones during sex. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely people do that. Absolutely. <laughs> so, but I think, you know, one of the things that made has made me saddest over the years is, I guess in theory, like, I've always, I had always thought that like, oh, well, in, you know, it, it's nice if sex is fun. If it's something you enjoy, it's not, always, you know, sex is not always going to be good. Sometimes things don't, you know, they just don't go that well or you don't click with someone or, and that's okay. Like that's, that yeah. happens. Yeah. But, you know, like in theory, it should be kind of fun and exciting. And yeah. one of the things that became very clear to me early on is that like it is being approached like a task to get done, like a task on the, you know, we not, we all have these endless to-do lists, right? Because of our, our emails and things like that. And, and so it's, it's like something you got to get done, something you got to get over with. And, and students will talk about it like that. Like, Oh, it's, it's, I got to do the sex, you know, I got to do the sex so I can say I did. And so I feel like a lot of the fun and the pleasure is sort of being bracketed. It's like, we don't have time for that part <laughs> or we haven't figured out what it would mean to have fun sex because that would take too much of our lives. Like we've got to do all these other things. And when we talk about well-being and, and being sort of a well-rounded individual, the, the sexual expression part is part of the, the deal. And if we're disconnected from that, we're disconnected from self, we're disconnected from sort of the intimacies of the human experience. Well, I definitely feel like, I mean, this is a bigger conversation, yeah. but to <laughs> me, the, the, key to, the key to consent is not in all this stuff we're talking about in society, like yes means yes and no means no, as though like those words are going to magically make everything okay. Because the problem is, is that you have generations of young adults who are disempowered around sex, who don't feel empowered, who don't even know their own desires often, but also definitely don't feel empowered to express them. And are learning that the best thing that, like what they're supposed to do is perform a set of cultural expectations around sex that they didn't come up with and that they don't even necessarily like or that feel good to them. And so you you're you're you have cultural expectations that are stealing their voice. And really I feel like, you know, like we got to back things up. Like we're we're talking about yes and no, but really this is about much more. Like this is about our relationship to sex. Period. And our relation, our ability to even like get to know our own desires or feel empowered to ask ourselves what they are. And I, so I feel like there's so much disempowerment around sex under the guise that this is sexual liberation that, that are, you know, our conversations about consent are just really, they're so surface as to be meaningless. And so even though it's good that we're talking about it, I feel like we're not getting at the deeper issue that's actually going to fix the problem. From your description, I go to the mental hygiene. I go to our emotional fitness. If we're not emotionally fit in all these areas of our lives, 
the physical manifestation of that, you know, the expression of our sexuality can't be fully realized. So if it's just a checklist item and there really isn't the consent of self with self, right? That's what I'm hearing you say. Like if we don't. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this is like a know thyself question. I mean, yes. you, know, you have philosophy in my background. So yes. I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of like all, you know, the examined life. I do think that that is really the, the topic. And, you know, one of the things that makes me so sad about college today, you know, in theory, it's supposed to be this place where you ask all the big questions, right? And we're somehow, we're still like teaching our students like not to use I in their papers, <laughs> which drives me nuts. But I mean, I think underneath that teaching is also the idea, you know, is the teaching that like yourself is not worth even putting into your papers. Like you, like the I that you are, the person that you are is not worth, you know, the examination you're, you know, that you're, you're supposed to be doing about all these different topics. And so like one of the things, like I actually wrote, I wrote a book for kids about consent and sex and you know, one of the, the first thing I talked about is, is how like you need to become a questioner about yourself. Like you need to, yeah. like, you are worth studying. Like you, like the self that you are is worth tons of study because that is how you become empowered about everything in your life, including sex. Like I do think it all starts there and that we, instead of like teaching kids how to really think about themselves, like becoming critical thinkers about themselves, about who they are, we're actually teaching them to, be, you know, think about everything else but themselves. I hear you. I, I mean, we could, we could go on and on and on because this conversation to me, <laughs> although it, it started out very circuitously, you know, and organically, it's like, <laughs> I think that like we we're hitting, we're, we're getting closer to hitting the nail on the head, right? About the essence of what makes a whole human being. And I want to give Rose Napolitano some, some airtime because she needs it. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about her. Oh, I'll just do the, the quick description. Um, so I also write novels, and which is related to all the other work, even though I know that sounds probably strange, but in my head it all relates. But I wanted to write a novel about a woman who didn't want to have children because I haven't really seen her in books, like ever, unless she's like, you know, the sad old spinster or the crazy woman that we lock in the attic. <laughs> And so I wanted to write that story and I couldn't decide how to write it. Like what I write about a woman who didn't want to have a baby, but had one anyway, and then how to deal with the consequences or would I write one who refused to, and then, you know, how to deal with the consequences. And it became the nine lives of Rose Napolitano because I wondered, well, what if I could write all the different ways I could envision her story? And so it's about a woman um, nine different versions of the same woman. And um, she, in some versions, she has a baby. In some versions, she doesn't. And you you see the repercussions of that choice and how it impacts her marriage, her career, her friendships, her relationship with her own family and her parents. And that's what it's about. Ooh, so a very good set of stories. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> very juicy. I mean, very, very topical and relevant to the rest of our conversation. Donna, please come back and hang out with me. And I really mean that. But I want to send our listeners over to DonnaFreitas.com and on Instagram at DonnaFreitas.writer. And we've been talking about Consent, a Memoir of Unwanted Attention and the Nine Lives of Rose Napolitano. Thank you so much. Oh, thank, oh, well, thank you, you so for having me. Ooh. I love the conversation. Me too. 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen on behalf of my guests, Elizabeth Lesser and Donna Freitas, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.